In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. gentlemen welcome back to the true life podcast i hope everybody's having a beautiful day it's friday we have an incredible guest i hope the birds are singing and the sun is shining and that you have something beautiful planned for your weekend i am here with the intelligent talented and lovely dolly beth reasoner she's a psychology instructor a counselor and a psychotherapist but she's more than that and we're going to get to know her today and some of her ideas dolly beth how are you today Wonderful. Really grateful to be on the show and to talk to you and share whatever is helpful to everyone, which is always my goal. Fantastic. Well, I had noticed that you've been on somewhat of a a speaking tour and doing lecturing um, here in the great state, the Aloha state of Hawaii. And I thought there were some interesting topics on there, everything from psychology to parenting. And I was just curious if maybe you could give some of my guests Maybe a, an intro into what your recent um, lecture series has been on. So I've been teaching psychology for the past 20 years, and I've been a psychotherapist for 23 years. And so it's evolved uh, over time. And I love that the evolution. If you go into psychology and spirituality, you have to be open minded and always be willing to re- deconstruct and reconstruct. Uh, whatever it is, because there's new research and from without, and then there's new insights from within. And a combination of that has happened in my career. So I really focused um, more on holistic, a holistic approach of body, mind, and spirit. Very quickly in psychology, I saw that whatever you do to your body affects your mind and affects your emotions. So very much into health psychology. And so when I was teaching and with clients, I really focused on All right, let's look at your body. What's going on in your body so that we see how it's affecting your emotional and mental state. So are you sleeping? So usually if people say, well, tell me one thing that I can do to be happier. After 20 plus years of studying psychology, there's many things I could say, but I would always start with get enough sleep. (laughs) If you can just add one more hour of sleep and if you have any sleep issues, I would really just address those first because that really changes 
everything. And so getting enough sleep is my kind of magic cure for to start with, if you can start with that. And so looking at sleep, exercise, uh, meditation, nutrition, have clients that come in with anxiety and they're drinking caffeine and coffee. And it's like, oh no, that's making it worse. And so I'm a huge proponent of green juices, juicing, uh, drink, like alkalinizing your system and just giving it what it needs in order to deal with everything else, all the things that life throws at us. And so I'm very aware of our body as the temple, like the way you take care of your car, taking care, this is the vehicle that we use to be able to have the experiences on this earth. And so taking really good care of it as much as you can. So I said I would have a lot more money if I didn't spend it most of it on organic foods. Uh, so a lot of it goes on just prioritizing things uh, for health. And so that's been a big part of my teaching and a big part of my counseling clients. And then moving on to, of course, emotional issues. So I, I have worked with parents. I did play therapy with kids, so kids who have been abused and neglected. So if anybody and any type of trauma, childhood trauma from parents getting divorced or bullying or anything, I really recommend parents with kids under 10 to look for a play therapist because they're really very Jungian. Carl Jung gets mm. to the issue of it. Cognitive behavioral therapy is great to talk, but as you get older, I think that's better. And you can do play therapy at any age, but I really recommend play therapy for kids um, because they play their issues and sometimes they can't verbalize them. And it is really healing and it's fun for them. They don't even realize that they're in therapy. So that's um, one of the things I did for a long time for Department of Health, Department of Education. I worked at psychiatric hospitals uh, in Hawaii and then had my own private practice, Positive Health Hawaii. And so working with parents and uh, I recommend a book by Dr. Shafali. Her name's a little bit difficult to pronounce, but it's called Conscious Parenting. And I think mm -hmm. that's really key. Uh, but out of all the books I've read uh, in for parenting, conscious, um, the conscious parent and uh, conscious parenting, Dr. Shafala, her approach is really to see kids as mirrors that teach us mm -hmm. and that we're not, you know, to not impose our hopes and dreams and expectations mm -hmm. on them and to have them be like little mini-me's. And that we get uh, all the uh, all our unfulfilled wishes through them, and all the pressures that we put right. Even and in the excuse of we just want the best for them, and so a lot of times is looking at what is it that they want, who they are, and not prioritizing what society thinks is important, but their own spirit and seeing that they have inner wisdom. And so if a child's acting out, there's always a reason. Kids are not born that way. I know we have genetic predispositions. Uh, but if they're acting out, they're hurting. And instead of just like, okay, we got a uh, behavior modification to get them to behave, which is a lot mm -hmm. of when I worked as a school counselor, it's like, we just got to get them to pass and to, it's more of, well, what's at the root of it? They're hurting. Where's the wound that needs to heal? And that's for all of us. For all of us, we can take the 300 plus disorders and unless it's like a neurological disorder, right? Or something's hormonally uh, neurochemical imbalance or hormonal imbalance or some type of brain damage it's really what wound are we not wanting to feel to heal we're numbing it somehow in some type of behavior 
So getting to that root of it has been really key for a parent, for us. And so you, you need to feel it to heal it. And so, <laughs> yeah, that's a big one. That's a good one. <laughs> and uh, recently, um, yeah, and of course, we know what we resist persists. And so going with that line, very much Michael Singer has been one of my teachers mm -hmm. of uh, the untethered soul and the surrender exper uh, experiment of learning to relax and not resist, to let go, to surrender, to accept. Byron Katie, loving what is, the power of now, Eckhart Tolle. These are like, I, I don't feel the need to go back thousands of years for wisdom <laughs> because I feel like we have these amazing teachers that are alive today that are telling us what we need to, to, to be happy, to grow, to evolve, to learn tools for today. And those are definitely uh, some of my teachers that I'm so grateful for, Suzanne Giesman. So I moved also into, so um, I wrote a book uh, called Love is Not Enough about codependency. And that has been something that I struggled with and uh, being in psychology, being in therapy myself, being a therapist, something that I've worked through. And then that now I wanna help others that are also going through codependency and how you can move from that feeling not enough and feeling like you have to become what somebody wants uh, in order to be loved and surrendering and, and doing everything that even hurts you to make sure that they love you at any cost. And so going from that to just what I call awakened goddess, like I really mm -hmm. woke up to my real self, my higher self, and that process was amazing. So I'm kind of talking a lot about a lot, but it's just been like from psychology to Dr. Wise and past life regressions, which I've incorporated into my practice. So it went from very traditional psychology, holistic, positive psychology that is the study of how to be happy and healthy, things like being grateful, learned optimism. Mm -hmm. um, to more spiritual. I mean, I, I've gone into parapsychology now, uh, researching from near-death experiences to somewhere along that line, realized that I had mediumship abilities while doing the past life regressions and helping people with grief, like from myself to others to connect to loved ones who've passed. I've never seen anything help grieving people who've lost someone help as much. It doesn't take away the pain, but as much as knowing their loved one's okay, getting evidence and being able to communicate with them themselves. So helping them to communicate. And so grief, um, and that has been a big component now of the therapy that I'm doing. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it's a, I, I, it seems like a long arc, but I think it's a common arc. I think a lot of people start off with like the scalpel of the intellect and like the psychology of figuring things out and okay, well, I'm going to shave off this part and I'm going to, I'm going to examine it. I'm going to get down deep in there. But then as you begin to grow in experience and mindset and you begin to understand that there's so much that you don't know, you can't not move into the world of spirituality. And in some ways it sounds a lot of what, people are, I think some of the biggest ailments we have right now, whether it's a child acting out or whether it's a parent who is, you know, sort of pinning their unrealized beliefs on their kid 
is this lack of spirituality. It seems that in the West, we have just decided to move away from spirituality. And people are now, you know, when it seems odd to say, oh, I can connect with my son that died, or I can connect with my mom that died. To some people, that throws people off. But why wouldn't it be that way? It's always been that way. If we look back at the history books, when we look at different cultures, there's always been a way to connect with our ancestors and it just seems like we're rediscovering that is that like do you think it's a normal character arc or are we rediscovering something or what was there a certain thing in your life that really made you begin to turn towards spirituality more that's a yeah you're 100 percent right we're we're actually going back to our roots Right. Of, uh, of knowing that this is natural. This is not, we call it supernatural, but it's actually really natural. For me, what happened was that, you know, I've been doing therapy for over 20 years, but in the path, I realized at a certain point, I realized I feel psychology is very helpful. But at some point, I realized it was a bit of putting a band aid on it and not getting yeah. to the root, root of it. And so there's different layers. And so I thought, okay, people are functioning better, but at the bottom is, why are we here? What is the meaning of life? Like the bigger picture. And so you can be functioning, you can be successful, you can be healthy. I mean, at the end of the day, we all die. <laughs> and so uh, Freud said, you know, the anxiety beneath everything is death anxiety. And so if you are not dealing with that, and so I realized that okay, psychology is super helpful, but it's not getting to the very, very depth and root of it all, which is our spirituality, just knowing, finding what you believe in. So it's not for me to tell you. Um, and so for me, I started out with faith in my life, very traditional, fundamental faith. And then studying psychology, actually, my questions weren't answered and I started more critical thinking. And so I left traditional religion and kind of psychology can become your dogma. Science can become your dogma and your religion. Right. Yep. And for a while, uh, technology, artificial intelligence and the future that became my religion. Like, well, maybe we don't have to die. Uh, the belief that the hardest part of my life was actually when I believed that when we died, nothing happens. It's just, mm. and so I give people who can believe that credit because I felt like groundlessness, like that was the hardest part, but I had to face it. I had to go there and say, that's a possibility. And I think that was the hardest. I think faith, I, of course, Freud and our roots say that religion and any type of faith is a crutch to deal with the death anxiety. I don't see that anymore. But I do feel like faith helps you uh, to to uh, be able to cope with life better. And I mean, there's different ones. And then you find a different evolutionary points in your life, what works for you. So for me, I'm kind of said, OK, if, we're, if we die, nothing happens. How about putting our faith in not dying and things like the singularity, mm -hmm. and immortality and transporting our consciousness to kind of AI and merging with all of that. I thought, okay, that's, that's, I want to put my hope into that where telomerase, you don't, you can stop aging and reverse yeah. it. That was where kind of my hope was. And I was really excited about all of that. I love uh, Tony Robbins book, Life Force and his new fountain of life places. So I'm all for health, but this was focused more on immortality. Like because when you die, it's all gone. Let's try to preserve this as long. And, and if you can stay alive for a couple of decades, technology is exponentially improving. 
then it can keep you alive for thousands of years, then millions of years, and maybe forever. So I was on that path and I had accepted it. I was working with it. And then I read Dr. Wise's Many Lives, Many Masters. And that changed everything. Um, something within just awakened and I, and I started remembering past lives. And then I got trained by Dr. Wise who, uh, he, I mean, his credibility like Mayo Clinic and Yale. And like, this is a real psychiatrist who was able to get some of his patients to remember past lives with evidence. And so I said, if, you know, if that can be helpful to my clients, I want to incorporate that into my practice. And it was rare healing for me. Um, and uh, I uh, started use, you know, doing it with clients and it was very helpful. It was, it's helpful to heal things that psychology wouldn't be able to have access to. So we do do hypnosis, but mm. past life regression is like, first of all, there's a reason we don't remember past lives. If you believe past lives are real, because there's a lot of stuff that happens in them and there's enough things that happen in this life for us to deal with. But sometimes we could be carrying things that are blocking us in this one that remembering could help us bring awareness to. That's the key. I think if you just do it because it's cool and it's fun to remember, okay, that could be helpful for you to realize you've been different races, different cultures, I mean, different genders. So you don't identify too strongly uh, to I'm, I'm a woman, I'm a man, I'm this culture, I'm this ethnicity, because <laughs> this, that's just in this life. And again, this is what I believe. You don't have to believe that. It, it doesn't mean that's the truth, but that's what I found for myself as my truth that um, it could be very healing to the world if we see ourselves that way, because you're not as attached and you realize, okay, next life, I could be something totally different. So why... Um, doesn't mean you have pride and you don't stand up for rights and things like that, but it's not who you are. It's really not who you are. It's just like the car. Like sometimes I've driven a Mini Cooper and sometimes I've driven a Volkswagen and that's not who I am. That's the car that I drive in that some people really identify with their car. Yeah. <laughs> <In this> life, <laughs> it's like, th that is who they are. <laughs> um, I mean, I drove a Mercedes for a while. I noticed people treat you different when you drive certain cars. And um, that was interesting, actually, to realize. And it's true. Even in these bodies, they treat you different when you look a certain way. or So that's true. But you're just changing cars. So that was really helpful um, doing the And that just opened up, I mean, a whole new world. Um angels and angel therapy. And um, at the time it was Doreen Virtue. She's actually kind of left that field, but trained with her and actually being able to connect with angels and spirit guides and things that, yeah, definitely out of psychology, um, more, yeah, parapsychology, but finding it super healing and helpful for me personally. And then for clients that were open. So I still definitely do traditional psychotherapy, but when I see when clients are open to it, uh, then introducing some of that. And some people come to me directly because they want that type of healing or connection. Yeah, it's fascinating to me. I When I think of past lives or I think of being, I, I think of like generational trauma. You know, some of the things that we have gone through, we may not remember, but you can get a good understanding of it by 
at least in my opinion, of what you're going through, if you, if you just take some time to meditate or just find a quiet spot to think about your life and really do some hard thinking, I have found that the same tests keep coming up until you pass them. And mm. once you do pass those tests, then like you're, you know, it's, it's not so much that history repeats, but like they say, it rhymes. And I think it goes in sort of like a helical pattern. So once you pass one test, you can kind of move up to the next rung and you continue to move up through life. And maybe that's evolution or maybe that's succeeding generational trauma or moving through our lives. And it's an interesting thing to think about. And when you talked about angels or past lives or or Mercedes or vehicles, I come to the idea of labels because the labels we use, whether it's, Hey, I drive, I drive a uh, night or 1964 Pinto versus someone who drives a Land Rover. You know, <laughs> automatically we have an idea of who that person is, even though that's such an unfair judgment, we've already decided who that person is. Mm -hmm. And so these ideas of labels and vehicles are a great way to begin to understand the flaws in our thinking. And it's not really our fault. I mean, we, we, are, we, we have a certain set of parameters we're given at birth, depending on where you're born mm -hmm. and your idea structure. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious. It seems to me that you have a really well-rounded experience in different kinds of therapy. And some of the things you're talking about, I think, connect really well to a, no, a new branch of psychology that's coming out that's affiliated with psychedelics. Have you... Have you like touched upon any of the psychedelic experience in your therapy? Yes, that's a great point. I watched documentaries on it. Michael, I Michael Pollan, Michael Pollan. His is really great. Yeah. Uh, his documentary and his, I haven't read his book, but the documentary was really great. And I'm excited about that in psychology because I feel like yeah. it's also going to get to the root and it's so promising for PTSD, for, mm -hmm. trauma, for everything, but especially starting with those. Um, my experience, I grew up in a very uh, athletic environment. My dad was an Ironman, is an Ironman uh, triathlete and did Molokai races and very healthy. I did the Iron Kids growing up, swimming, paddling canoe. And so they, did, they never drank. We never had alcohol in the house, drugs, anything like that. And so it was very much no drugs. And I didn't do any for all of my life until... Um, I had a friend go to Rhythmia, and, uh, which is in Costa Rica, to mm -hmm. do ayahuasca, mm -hmm. and ended up studying with a shaman. And uh, yeah, Rhythmia is a great place because it has kind of the American, Western medical uh, nurse kind of people to, in case anything happens, yeah. which could be safe, but it also has the shaman and the, and the juicing and the healthy components. So it's like a spa and also <laughs> like a retreat and yeah. an experience. So they went and did that and then came back trained by the shaman and said, if I wanted to do, to do it, they would do the ceremony for me. So I did the ayahuasca yeah. ceremony. Yeah. And that was amazing. Like what it, what it was, for, it was beautiful. There was no, I feel like there can be purging, but when you, I've done a lot of self work and like I said, I keep my car as healthy as possible, sure. my temple, my body. And so the, I didn't experience the purging part of it. Maybe I didn't take enough or whatever it was, but I did experience waves of love 
just like when you're in the ocean growing up in Hawaii. Yeah. yeah. Imagine when you're in the ocean and you go yep. up and sometimes there's another wave and you're like, okay, I can't have waves coming so soon because I don't have enough time to take a breath. That's what it felt like, but it was waves of love. <laughs> and I, I kept feeling I can't, like I can't, I can't take another wave it's too much. It's the weirdest thing because it's beautiful. It's amazing. But you feel like just almost like, well, I've ha I have two uh, children, uh, 21 and 16, like contractions. It's like, wait, just get, just please give me a second to like breathe. <laughs> but it was waves of love. And then there was roses everywhere, pink roses and rainbows. <laughs> and then I felt forgiveness. So I thought I had done a lot of work already. You're a therapist. You should definitely be therapy yourself uh, so that your own blocks are not getting in the way of the work that you do. And so I thought, you know, I have an ex-husband and I have relationships who have passed and issues with my dad. And all of a sudden I felt so much love and forgiveness for each of them. I guess more, there was more stuff that I needed to like go and forgive. And I felt so much love for each relationship, starting with my dad, my ex-husband, ex-boyfriend, so key major people in my life that I thought I had either asked for forgiveness or forget and just so much love for them. Yeah. And that was, um, so I, I had that experience, which was amazing. And then uh, I'm definitely a proponent for the use of psilocybin mm -hmm. and DMT. I watched the documentaries and everything. I haven't tried that, but I did once later on <laughs> eat some chocolate some brownies that had stuff in them yeah <laughs> and um i was hungry and i just thought i just i'd never done it before so i just didn't know and i ate a lot of brownies <laughs> that's so <laughs> awesome it's my daughter's choice like dark chocolate is definitely and i just mm. thought it, i mean you can't have i mean it was like big and <laughs> and then uh, within a, a matter of time Unfortunately, it wasn't a good experience. Um, I no longer knew who I was. And I've never had that happen before and, and since. But it's the scariest thing. I, I just, I was fully awake and aware, but I had no memory that tied me to any, any personality, any, anything. So I knew, but I knew where I was. I was in a cabin and uh, I knew that somebody was there with me because there was somebody there with me, but I didn't have any memory that connected me to Dolly Bath. Mm -hmm. So I could look at my everything, but I had no memory. So zero memories that could tell me, give me any clues of who I was. And so not having a, any identity was the scariest feeling I've had my whole life. You would think it's liberating. Like I'm just consciousness. And I've done that in like tanks. I love right. float tanks. Right. And I recommend them for many issues from PTSD that there's a lot of research float tanks. And I love that experience was beautiful. I felt back in the womb, mm -hmm. my mom, and I felt being pure consciousness. Just This wasn't like that. This was the scariest, like my heart, I know heart racing. I think I'm going to die. But the whole thing was uh, just not having any memory. Like who, who am I? And I kept saying, I don't know who I am. Please help me. I don't know who I am. And that was like for seven hours. I felt wow. That. And it and I it was like it was a nightmare. And so that wasn't a good experience. Um, 
<laughs> and that's the extent of it for me. Um, does it feel, does it feel like I've had some similar experiences where I've taken large doses of psilocybin and just gotten to points where everything I knew about reality was wrong. Like everything that I had thought I was, I'm like, I was living in a, in a complete different reality. Like I was under the assumption that, that like I, I was meeting Jesus and like, everybody was in on this giant conspiracy and I'm like, Oh, totally. Like everything makes sense now. And like for a few hours, I just, I was alone and I, I had prepared myself for like, okay, this is going to be a large dose. I'm probably going to begin thinking a lot different. And, and I did, it was, it was almost, I felt like I was in Ken Kesey's one flew over the cuckoo's nest a little bit and you know, but it was such an incredible thought process as I began to integrate it for a few hours. Like I, I was somebody else. And as I began to integrate it later, I thought to myself, like, wow, this must be the closest you can get to having a mental disorder and, and getting to understand what that's like in some ways. And I think what you went through, too, what an amazing opportunity for you to get to understand what it may be like for someone who is riddled with anxiety or someone who has panic attacks or someone who is in those states that is, is not always well. And, you know, I, I think there's something to be said about being in those states. And it says, it, it allows you to have some empathy for those people because you realize you too could be in one of those states. It may be induced by a, a chemical or it may come on as something else, but all of us have this ability to lose sight of who we are, where we're at and what we think. And when you do that, I think that it, it does allow you to grow on some levels. Maybe you look back at it and you're like, wow, that was a tremendously horrible experience. Or you look back at it and you're like, wow, that was an incredible experience. I don't want to continue to do it. But you know, having the courage to go through that experience and allow yourself to feel those things, I think is a, is a it, it probably gives you insights that you would have never had had you not gone through it. Do you feel like even though it may have been a horrible experience that you learned from it? Yes, I'm grateful for all the experiences. And yes, even though it was horrible and I survived <laughs> it, I'm glad I had it because yeah. I just feel like maybe that's what it feels like yep. um, for somebody with dementia, maybe and Alzheimer's. Yes. So that, that was the big one. So not having memories to connect you to, I just realized that yeah. the memories are what connect you to the personality because I still was breathing and I could move and it was still me, but I had no idea who I was. And so maybe having memory, um, some type of amnesia too, there's people who lose yeah. a few years of their life. And so how much of who we are is the story. And slowly wow, the yeah. way that it, I started coming out of it was pictures of my daughters started popping up. But, and so I knew I had daughters. I'm like, oh, okay, I have daughters. But imagining not having any memory of with them, like nothing, like not any experience with them, but just seeing a picture and saying, oh, I know that's my daughter, but I, I don't remember ever doing anything with that person. So you don't have the relationship, the connection. And that, that even that was scary. So yes, I can, I am grateful. I can definitely relate more. I have worked with people with mental illness, with schizophrenia, mm -hmm. um, and delusions and psychosis. And even in psychology, though, we see them a certain way. And yeah. I've always been more open to, well, that's how we see them. But what if they're open to a different dimension in reality? Because schizophrenics, they can hear, see, hear things, see things 
their brain, is it their brain malfunctioning or is it because their brain is malfunctioning, they're able to perceive things that we can't when our brain is functioning? Because I see the brain as a filter. Mm -hmm. And so when the filter's not working, then the things start coming in. Um, I do transcendental meditation and TM. I mean, psychology kind of likes to endorse that one because there's a lot of research, but I think all types of meditation, I've done Tibetan chanting, which I love. And so just finding what works for you. There's so many apps from, right, that help you with that. Um, but for me, that seemed to work. Um, and um, so when I'm in meditation, I've had experiences, but nothing like that in, in any of my meditations or with any other type. I grew up, you know, again, my dad and everybody, my dad's very spiritual. He follows Yogananda and does Kriya mm. Yoga. And so he was very much about uh, LSD and drugs. It's cheating. It's, it's mm. a shortcut. And then my uh, cousin did too much LSD and had a psychotic break. Mm. In psychology, there's like fear-based about those. It's like, if yeah. you, it's going to, if you have a, pre, a disposition, genetic predispositions towards schizophrenia, those drugs can trigger a psychotic break and then you're done. And my great grandfather um, was diagnosed with mystic disorder and institutionalized all his life because all he wanted to do was meditate. <laughs> so he locked himself in his room and he just wanted to meditate. Unfortunately, he had five kids and a wife and he just wasn't there for them. That, I, that's terrible mm. for my grandma and her siblings and my great grandma. But he just started meditating like, became addicted to meditation he just bliss right the bliss mm -hmm. and i don't know where he traveled to all these mm -hmm. things and and at the time long time ago they're like they called it mystic disorder so i'm like okay that that some people could say that schizophrenia it's better that i don't mm -hmm. mess with anything because what if i have a genetic predisposition um but i think that's all fear-based and i do have part conspiracy like is it pharmaceuticals yeah. wanting to not um uh, the natural way of healing? Is it a way to suppress it from society to awaken? Um, and to, it's easier to control sheep. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. Individuals. And so I don't know. I mean, I don't have evidence. I haven't done any research, but there's a feeling of why was it shut down so quickly? And then why is it so fear-based? So I think mm -hmm. we're coming back to it in a safe mm -hmm. way. And I love how in psychology now um, all yeah, psilocybin and LSD and microdosing. I'm excited about it because I feel it's being done right um, in safe environments. Therapists are being trained in how to do it. And so maybe it's the coming together of spirituality and psychology. Yeah, I love that. I think you're right. I think that we are seeing this merger of, and we need both. Like you need science and you need spirituality. And I think they kind of go together like the double helix. Like they, they feed off each other. They move information back and forth between each other. I was recently talking with a really fascinating, um, there's a, a, a doctor that I talked to, Dr. Jessica Rochester. And she is the Mahadrina of the Santo Daime Church in Canada, which is like an ayahuasca church. And she led me through this exercise where it kind of reminds me of the, the experience you told me where you like you, you lost all connection to who you were. And I'll, I'll, do you, let's do this. Do you care if we do a quick little like thought experiment? Sure. Okay. So and you don't have to say it out loud. This is for the people. If, they, if they're listening or you're watching, I want everyone to think about this as we go through this. So 
imagine writing down seven labels of what you are and they can be whatever labels you want. It can be father, mother, family, husband, you know, truck driver, psychologist, whatever your seven things are. So you write down seven things and then you put them in a backpack and you start walking on this trail and you get to the first stop, the first little checkpoint and you pull out your backpack and you take your seven labels out and you, you've, you've organized them in, in, in importance and then you look through them and you now you have to take three of them and set them down at that first checkpoint right there. You put the red, you shuffle them back in order then you go to the next checkpoint. You walk up the mountain a little bit and then you get to the second checkpoint and you take out your labels again and you look at them and you get rid of two. So now you only have two left. And by the, you get to the third checkpoint and now you, you got a tough decision to make because you have these last two things that you're holding on to, right? <laughs> and you go, okay, I am going to leave this one here. And you get to the top of the mountain and there's one more checkpoint. And, and, and here's the deal. Okay. I say to you, I want you to take this last thing you're holding on to, and I want you to leave it here. It's going to be okay. All these things that you've left are going to be there when you get back, but I need you to give up this last one. And we're going to go up into this, into this spaceship for a little while and just, and just be. So in this thought experiment, you give up your last label of whatever it is and you imagine letting go. And then you go into this place where you're just there. There's no ties to things. And you spend, you know, an hour, two hours just being you, just being this idea of life and love and light. And then after an hour, you come back down. And now you have the choice, Dolly Beth. As you, you have the choice as you're walking back down to grab those labels if you want them. And then what happens, at least for me in that experience, was this idea that the meanings of those things changed. And there were things I didn't want to pick up. And so when you told me that experience of what happened to you, while frightening as it is, it's a lot like that thought experiment, but it does give you, imagine being with someone who understands this idea of, oh, okay, now you've lost it. You've lost complete meaning. Fantastic. You've made it. Now you have an opportunity to reintroduce meaning to your life. You have, you know, you have an opportunity to reconnect these labels that you had. And if you don't want them, you don't have to take them. Like that is an incredible gift to give someone in their thirties or their forties or fifties or even older. Like, look, I'm going to give you the opportunity to reinvent how you feel about these things in your life. And that kind of harkens back to our relationships with our, our exes, our kids, our children that have maybe died or, and when I, when I heard that experience, I thought about that thought experiment, like, wow, the first time you go through something like that, it is tremendously scary, but what if you could go through it again, but this time understand the environment? It's like when you go hiking sometimes, or like if you're out in the ocean and you're by yourself and surf's getting super big, you get really scared. But yeah. the more often you're out there and the more you become comfortable with the environment, the more opportunity you have to really enjoy the power and the beauty of that power out there. And so I just wanted to share that experience, that thought experiment with you, because yes. it kind of reminded me of that. What do you think about that thought experiment? I love that. I love that. Uh, a couple of things. I think what happened was detachment. There's yes. a, the, yes. detached to the, those things that I am. And so I do, I feel like <laughs> uh, it can be on the other extreme, right? Because sure. now there's a, a sense of, you know, people say I identify as, you know, yes. whatever it is you identify as. Uh, so I, <laughs> I don't really identify as human and as Dolly Beth. And so I know I am doing this and it doesn't mean I have like personality disorder or anything like that, but 
just, I, I really, I'm not attached at all to, to this. Uh, I mean, it's still life and everything you do, but I really don't identify as human. And people say, but you are human. I'm like, mm. I know I am right now in a human role and in, in the role as Dolly Beth, but I really feel the way, like a movie, like Tom mm. Cruise plays a role. I mean, he seems to play the same role. <laughs> <laughs> Totally. <laughs> I'd say people that are in more diverse roles. Um, I feel like it would be like telling an actor once they finish a movie, like, do you identify as that mm -hmm. actor? It's like, no, I identify as who I am. And I did get to find out who I am when I'm not Dolly Bath. And I think that is priceless. Mm -hmm. And so if you get to see who you are, when you're not this role, when you're out of character, when you're not in costume, when yeah. you're not in the movie. And so it's the same character, it's the same person playing different roles, past lives or simultaneous lives, it doesn't matter, but I just see it as, and so that's been a gift, but also it's, a, it, um, I don't know, it, you're detached and so you're not as, attached to things which is good right very buddhist detachment mm -hmm. but it can take some time to adjust because you live in a world where everybody's it's very truman show yeah totally <laughs> very much in the truman show what happened to jim carrey when and i'm so excited i got to go to seaside where they filmed the truman show i'm such a huge fan and i was like this is the house <laughs> and uh we're, we're i was i my daughter is the same we're really into the same kind of stuff we're like we're in the truman show in the truman show like where they filmed <laughs> the truman show like within within but um yeah it was hard for jim carrey right and his character to continue like when you wake mm -hmm. up going about he couldn't just play like everybody else knowing it was a movie. So that's taken some adjustment that does take some adjustment. So it comes, it's a gift, but it's like, okay, now I know it's a movie. I still need to care about my mm -hmm. role. It still matters just cause it's a movie. Like I still need to be invested. So how do you balance being invested knowing it's a movie and that that's not who you are. And uh, so that I think I'm learning how to balance that. And then I've lately, I, I definitely cannot <laughs> explain this because I'm in the midst of it. So I'm always like definitely um, dropping things out of my backpack and, uh, and you can't, I learned you can't rush somebody to take things out of their backpack of mm -hmm. who they are. So it all happens in our time for me it's happened. but uh, Thomas Campbell and my big toe and um, his, he's a physicist, actually a NASA physicist. And my dad is also a physicist. And so I think I have some connection with that, that I really admire that type of work and thinking. And um, so his thing, his big toe, which I didn't even know what that meant. That means like your big theory of everything is that um, this is virtual, a virtual reality simulator. So the same as a movie. And so um that we are individual units of conscious awareness from the from the source, whatever you want to call it, the big computer, I guess. Yeah. And that we're fractals of it, and that we are uh, simulating. So here, Earth is a physical matter reality, and then when you die, you go to non-physical uh, matter reality, and that of course there's layers and, and things like that. So I'm like, right when I thought I had like, okay. 
uh, like groundedness with the spiritual. I'm like, okay, the angels, the spirit world. And I, right when I think I have to figure out, I think I'm so curious and open-minded that if there's new evidence for something else, or if I have some experience, it's scary because it just takes the rug like from under you. You're like, I finally felt safe. I finally felt like I figured this out, this thing that we're in and who we are and what we're here. And then something else comes and it's like, there's moments where you feel like, oh my gosh, what does this mean? It changes what I believe. But somehow it's, if you're open to it, it starts integrating and creating like a new new ground for you to stand on. So that's kind of, <laughs> I'm always like people who know me, they're like, you're, you're always changing like you're always you don't just stay in the same belief or the same and I just yeah I can't I feel like if I'm open and ready to know something else I want to I I'm not afraid to be open to something showing that what I believed was maybe not what I thought which can yeah, be gives yeah absolutely it, it's I think it's fascinating and each one of those modalities give you a different understanding, not only of the world around you, but who you are and what role you play. And I, I, I've been, I've seen on some level, I've caught a, a glimpse of living those lives the same way where you immerse yourself in these ideas. Okay, this, what if it's this way? And you can live your life that way and you get to see the world differently than if you look at it from the big toe perspective or Lately, I've been looking at it as this idea of humankind as like a super organism, you know, the same way that um, grasshoppers become locusts, you know, and then we, we all move like an idea, like ideologies and ideas are actually organisms. And sometimes they work through us and you and I are the leading edge of an ant colony that's moving through the forest, you know, but we're all acting, you know, maybe, maybe somehow we're all acting through pheromones and like we don't thoroughly understand what's going on, but we're moving down a direction that is something that's been laid out for us or something that we're moving towards. Like we're yeah. evolving as a, as an organism together. And like you see yeah. all this change happening. And when you do that and you, if you're really willing to embrace these different ideas and live them for a little while, I think you're rewarded with a different understanding that people can either gravitate towards or that maybe you can help other people see things. And it's such a, it is a healthy thing to, to try and understand yourself from these different areas. And it gives you perspective and understanding and empathy. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. I'm glad to hear that you as a, someone who is going and helping people are willing to see these different modalities. I think it's, it's helpful. And I want to, I want to, I want to take that in a direction here where, Get your opinion on this. I, I'm a big fan. Of, like Sometimes I'll read this. Like, I, like I, I came from a family that has a lot of mental illness. My father has bipolar. And mm. there was just a lot of mental illness in my family. And so I found myself always like, you know, I'm a big fan of the DSM and just reading like, oh, this is what this disease is. Or this is what people say this disease mm. is. But if you start reading the DSM long enough, you start thinking, there's a lot of mental illness in here. And there seems to always be more. And is it that people, is it that we as society are finding and discovering new mental illnesses? Or do you think that maybe it's our system, the way we're living? Like maybe that's the problem. Maybe it's not the individual yeah. who's sick. Maybe it's the society that's sick. What do you think about that? Yeah, this book isn't about mental illness, but I think it's, it's called Tribe. Tribe mm -hmm. by John Jonathan, I think. Um, Chuck said, I can't remember his name. Uh, 
but in talking about how we evolved to be in tribes and community and um, that we've moved away from that, like 150 people, our brain seems to be mm -hmm. wired for us to be an evolution. And so we've created something really unnatural, the way we're living to the way that we evolved. So humanity, whatever it is that, I mean, whether it's virtual or not, it's a, it's a, <laughs> we're in the video game yeah. and these are the, the rules and of the body and the physics and all of it. And so being isolated, uh, everybody kind of fending for themselves, even if you have uh, family, it's very individualistic in our culture. So it's not all over the world, but Western world. And that's the American Psychological Association, right? And the DSM, so now they have a DSM-5, it gets updated every 10 plus years. And it started out with maybe 80 disorders. Homosexuality was a disorder at one point. Um, and then it got taken out. So things can be taken in, taken out. Virtu uh, what is it? Video game addiction is put in, mm -hmm. you know, different disorders are put in. And so it's the way it's a, a, the way America, right? American psychological associations assesses something as a disorder, like grief. They say, you know, after a month, uh, mm -hmm. if, if you are not done grieving, <laughs> it's a disorder. It's like what? <laughs> so we give time frames and it's helpful. Okay, so there's different views. Some say it's not good to label. You talked about labeling. Like I worked in the school system. It, once you have your child diagnosed, it goes in their label. Every teacher he or she will ever have will see that label and will treat them according to mm -hmm. that label. And so they're self-fulfilling prophecies, right? Expectations. Yeah. So we had experiments where teachers were told this group of students are very dim, not so good. And so they're going to need, extra, you know, just extra work, extra help. And these kids are brilliant. And it, there was no difference between the two. They found that because the teachers expected the kids to be brilliant, their scores actually went up. And the kids who were expected to not be so great, their scores actually went down, even though they, they were randomly assigned in each group. So expectations affect mm. expectations for ourselves, expectations from our parents, expectations from our society can play a role. And so it's good. In that sense, I worry about labels. You're... Uh, labeled as this whatever disorder it is and then you're like oh I act this way because of that then it can also be helpful to understand like why do I act this way why why do I behave this way and also for accommodations and treatment mm -hmm. right uh, like EMDR I think it's a great treatment eye movement desensitization for trauma for soldiers for things but but some people believe for example depression is blocked energy and if you unblock the energy, the flow, Shakti, that flows through us, uh, then depression is no longer there. So it affects the way you view a disorder and also the way you treat it. And this is just a psychological component. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look at the health, you know, biological, well, it does to an extent, but definitely not the spiritual component <laughs> of it. So it's not, I think it can be a helpful tool, but like everything else, it can be misused to, um, you know, you, you have this disorder, so you have to uh, behave this way, and then you expect it, and also the treatment for it. Um, so I think it's a Western view, but definitely the way we're living, um, somebody loses their job. Like in, in, in tribal society, it wasn't just like, okay, now you're homeless, mm. or you're grieving, or I mean, community would rally. And that's why I see countries like if you watch documentaries like Happy or I Am by Tom Shadiak, it shows like Denmark, Okinawa, places where like 
it's not just you. Like if you lose your job or if you lose a loved one or if you're sick or a widow, like we, we evolved that everybody would rally around you and support you. You never felt like, cause that's one of the biggest fears. I hear people go, Oh, I'm going to end up homeless. It's like, mm. there wasn't a homelessness. There was no alone. It was a, a tribe that would be there for you to support you when you're strong. You, you, you help the tribe when you're weak, the tribe helps you. And not that we have to go back to tribal living, but in countries like Denmark, there's more communal living. And I hear, I have a friend who lives in Colorado, who's more in a communal living. It doesn't have to be hippie skippy, but um, <laughs> there is a sense of isolation. I mean, loneliness kills. Loneliness is as bad for you. And loneliness and hopelessness is as bad for you, according to research, as smoking and obesity. So you could not smoke, you could be the perfect health, and then it, it just tells your immune system to start shutting down, and you're more mm -hmm. likely to die from hopelessness and loneliness. So there's, and then a lack of meaning and purpose. Like for me, I'm like, okay, I've, I've read so much, and at a certain point, it's not about reading, it's about going within, and I'm mm -hmm. wanting to find the answers from within through meditation. Um, and it's that it's just basic, like be kind, be present, be grateful. Yeah. <laughs> attitudes those are like every morning i wake up like okay be kind be grateful be present and i mean there's a lot of other things that we can apply but i don't feel that we're doing that for each other we're not present we're not grateful we're not kind to each other and so you're saying is there more mental illness um maybe we're getting better identifying different ones but i think we're seeing like um if the whole society is mentally ill the way we're, it's a conducive yeah. it's conducive to mental illness so the society I, like political things you can put aside but russell brand i think is really good at showing how the society we've built is the perfect society you would build if you wanted to increase mental illness <laughs> that's so crazy so it's true Yeah. So I, I mean, I sometimes I'm, I help individuals Yeah. because I get really frustrated because there's an old story about, I mean, it's kind of scary. They, they keep finding like dead babies in the river and they try, and then some of them are not dead. So they, they save the babies. And then there all these people are saving the, these babies in the rivers, whatever ones they can save. And so the whole tribe starts working towards saving these babies in the river. And then somebody says, shouldn't we try to find out like where all these babies are coming from? Like who's throwing the babies in the river, like the root cause of it. And you're like, no, we don't have time because if, if you go to look for it, we won't, you won't be able to be saving the babies. Right. And it's like, but shouldn't we get to the root? Like, let's stop the babies being thrown in the river. Like who's throwing them? Like who, what's doing this? And so when I'm treating people for 20 years and it's like, And seeing that a lot of it is systemic. It's a system. Mm -hmm. It's the system that's conducive to this. Mm -hmm. It's a little frustrating because I am helping that one person and that matters. But what can I do? And then it can, you know, you have to meditate and pray on it. Uh, what can I do to change systems that are creating the environment like a bad barrel instead of a, a bad apple to stop the babies instead of say it's great to save the babies, but... You could save them all <laughs> or most of them and you stop what's causing the babies to go in there. So your question uh, is really right. And then I, at this point, I realized that we can focus 
I don't know about changing systems, politics, all those things. I think raising awareness, your podcast, like to raise awareness and consciousness is beautiful. Your book, um, we can do our part and not feel overwhelmed. And at the end, what really matters is you raising your own consciousness. I think it's beautiful to share. But the most mm -hmm. important thing, I think Tom, Tom Campbell talks about it, is like entropy. And entropy is... Um, I guess more disorganized energy and less love and lower entropy is the goal, which is more love. And the more you can lower your entropy, the more loving you can be kind, humble, compassionate, joyful, all those things. It does affect the whole. Mm -hmm. I, I know we talk about being one and it's all connected, but if you're like, I can't change the world. I can't. Cause sometimes I would have that feeling like I want to save the world, but it's like, it's okay. If you can raise, lower your entropy. If you can, if I can lower my entropy and become the most peaceful, loving, kind individual, because we're connected, the entropy mm -hmm. level of the, of the whole gets lowered. So I'm, I'm doing my part. And then if I can help others to do it, that's great. But if I can't, at least you can focus on you because you have control over you. So yeah, that's, that's really well said. I think, I, I agree. I think that the best way to make the environment and your world better is to become the best version of yourself. Right. And I, 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 I agree wholeheartedly that you can, if you listen, the world talks to you or the spirit talks to you, or there's something bigger than us that whispers to you, whether it's on the wind or whether it's the passing smile of a stranger. Like I, I'll give you an example of what I mean. I, I, I noticed in my life that, I was being confronted with people that I was being mean to. And I figured I had to like think to myself, like, why am I being mean to this person? Or someone had pulled me aside and like, why are you being mean to this person? And I thought, oh, I don't like that person because they're weak. But it wasn't that they were weak. It was that I was weak. And the world was trying to show me like, hey, this thing you don't like, it's not something you don't like in them. It's something you don't like in yourself. And when you can begin to do that, like, and, and here's my, here's my, here is my um, thing I'll put out there for people. And this is what I learned. And maybe other people can learn by listening to this. These things that you see in other people that you don't like are things you don't like about yourself. And that's the world showing you. Like everyone's kind of a mirror. If, if you see something in someone that bothers you, it's probably because you have that trait inside you. And that's that gives you an opportunity to fix it. Like, oh, maybe I should, maybe I would be happier about myself if I was more courageous. Maybe I'd be happier for myself if I stood up for myself more. And then you, if you can take that view in somebody else and apply it to yourself, that helps you become the best version of yourself. And it helps lower that entropy. And then all of a sudden, people begin looking at you as, hey, I like what you did there, George. How do I do that? And then you become the example. But you do that by seeing the negative things about maybe other people and realizing that's a negative thing about you changing it and then you become an inspiration for other people and i mm -hmm. i think that, that filters right back into your idea of you becoming the best version of yourself and you it's it's so beautiful how it's we're all connected that way and if you can understand what the world's telling you if you can understand what the wind is whispering to you then you can begin to make yourself better and people around you better and society better like that i i think it's a great example of of how you can make make things better and mm -hmm. I, I do I, I i'm curious about the 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 world we live in and while there's so much doom and gloom out there i'm i'm really bullish on the future i think that we're on the cusp of 
a world not only more beautiful than you imagine, but more beautiful than you can imagine, like birth, right? Like there's a, there's a real opportunity or not an opportunity, but there's a real potential for a child to die or a mother to die during childbirth. But that's why they call it the miracle of birth. I, I feel like we're on the cusp of birthing a new world, Dolly Beth. What do you think about the future? Are you, are you happy about the future? Are you excited about it? What do you think? Well, first of all, that was beautiful what you Thank said. You. I feel like if people can really hear that, that's it. That's like all of it right there. Yeah. <laughs> you summed it up in perfectly beautiful. It reminded me of like Ho'oponopono. Uh, they say, if you spot it, you got it. I love it. <laughs> and and then the I love you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. And, and prayers and things like that. But um, I think uh, I don't watch the news as much, Smart. if at all, <laughs> for my own mental health. <laughs> yeah. It's shown less depression, the less news you watch. Doesn't mean I don't care. It just means I'm really focused on myself and whatever mm -hmm. I need to know about the world I, need, I, I do. Uh, I'll find out and I will do my part. So definitely for activism and for improving the world. And it's not that it doesn't matter, uh, but I don't feel a sense that we have to save the world uh, or save humanity. Or, because if, if, if it is a simulation, it still matters, but it's built in a way that helps us grow. And mm -hmm. so I was telling this to my 22-year-old. I said, I wish I knew this when I was your age, mm -hmm. that the goal of the game or the goal of all of this is to lower entropy, to become more loving. And I know that's just a physics. I, I connect to the physics term of it, but it's all religions, right? To become more loving. Those are the only points you take with you uh, after the game, after you leave this game and then you can come back if you believe you come back, right? So it, with that model, you keep coming back uh, after you reflect on and learn from, because the whole point, like you said, it whispers to you. Yeah. Yes. Evolution, growth, learning, lowering entropy is a natural movement of consciousness. And so we all feel it, but we can resist it. There's something called, you know, taking the path of least resistance. We can become like mm -hmm. plants and we just don't, we just cruise by and take, yeah. we can choose to do that, but that's the goal. So I mean, that's if you know that's the goal, like I don't play video games, but if you play video games, you want to know what's the goal of the video game. And when your character dies, you want to know what point and memory, right? You get to keep to, to play again. So what do you keep? And so my experience of losing all my memories, that was, it was helpful to detach. But I'm so grateful that we keep our memories from every lifetime to learn, uh, that we keep the memories from every lifetime to learn and grow for the next time around so you can use it, even though they might be blocked, you still, like the points that only matter, and like they say, love is all you take. You leave everything behind, you leave the the Pinto and the Land Rover, you leave the, <laughs> right, all of it. And if you've lost loved ones, you see that you leave them, whether they were in great shape, not great shape, whether they were successful, lots of money, no money, like you leave all of it. But what you do take is the love, the, how much love, how much entropy you decreased in yourself. And then you come back the next time and try to decrease it more. And that helps the whole decrease it. If you know that, then I feel like every action you take, it seems like every action you take every day, it's more, it's more like as a teacher, I've been teaching for 20 years and at the university. And so it seems like every quiz is more important than big exams. 
Mm. It all matters, but all of yeah. us maybe don't realize that it's everyday choices of kindness, of lowering our entropy, of being loving, every opportunity you have that really matters every day. And if you focus on that, I think everything else is okay. Like we don't have to worry about. So I feel great about the future because I don't feel like it, I need to worry about it. It's not that I don't care whatever I feel inspired to do, whether it's write letters or protest or not, or help a client. It's more of everyday choices. Am I choosing love? Am I choosing fear? Am I choosing selfishness? Like you said, am I choosing to be mean? The little choices, incremental choices is mm -hmm. what matters every day. And if I focus on that, everything else I think is okay. How, do you, how would you apply that? Like, that's beautiful. And I, I love that you brought up those points. How would you apply that to a relationship, people? And it seems to me like, like while sometimes we, we take the macro picture of the future or we look at the past, but a big part of our mental wellness is the relationships that we have every day with our loved ones. How would you apply some of those key points that you made to relationships that we have every day? Yeah, being aware. So awareness is key when you notice like you you're very aware and you're being you're open to where you're like, I'm being mean to somebody. So <laughs> are you talking about romantic relationships or any relationship? Well, let's start with let's start with regular relationships, then move into romantic relationships, because I think they're a little they have a lot more moving parts in there. Yeah. So regular relationships is coming to them with the approach of not because we have to manage the evolutionary part of us, physical, physical reality that it's about mm -hmm. adaptation and survival and reproduction, right? And so you have to manage that with the spiritual evolution. And so it's not coming into a relationship with somebody as what can I get out from them to survive, to be able to continue and reproduce, right? But to come into relationships with the spiritual evolution of how can I be kind to this person? What, how can I help them? Not what can I get? So if you have that perspective, we have to kind of rewire. So I do know that we're working. It's like knowing your car. I don't know anything about mechanics, but studying psychology has really helped me to understand the vehicle that we're using so that you can work with it. So the male brain, the female brain, even though you biological, so born biological, female, born biological, female, there are differences and knowing that can be helpful in relationships or knowing how our behaviors are there to help us adapt and but not necessarily be happy, <laughs> like to not make changes in our life because change means possibility of death. For 200,000 years of our species, we evolved this brain, right? And this system that wants us to keep us safe and alive, not necessarily happy and evolving and growing, but let's keep you alive. Let's keep you reproducing you know, and that's survival instead of what's best for our spiritual growth. And so I think overriding, learning how to override that system, knowing how it works and overriding it, um, I think is really helpful. Uh, you know, it, this reminds me of a conversation I recently had with a, a gentleman named Kevin Holt, who, who wrote a book, and he was talking about divorce and how we he had come to the conclusion that love is a choice and he had grown up in a, in a, a family where his, his family had stayed together. And so when he, when he, when his relationship didn't work out the way that it wanted to, and he ended up getting a divorce, he said that he felt like shame and all these, this pressure on him. And, you know, it, it, it can't, 
I'm neither a judge nor a jury, but it seemed to me that he was felt this incredible shame and this this judgment that was on him. Like when we talk about love and relationships and wellness, you know, how do we how do we cope with the idea that the relationship we thought we were in didn't work? And how do we move past that once those relationships don't work? Okay, so it's changing perspective. And what are your beliefs? So he had a belief that if your relationship doesn't work, so it could be come from society. Where does it mm-hmm. come from? Does it come from his upbringing, his culture, that you're a failure, that um, that it's wrong, that it's against your religion? So what are your beliefs that, because even in, it, sometimes it's not even yours, but it's like osmosis. It's in the water mm. in yeah. society. And you can absorb those beliefs and think. And so just flashing a light on them, like, is important. So where did that belief come from? And realize, like, I always come back to the bigger picture. So if you see why we're here, where we go when we leave, like we're interacting with each other, like you said, mirrors, we're being mirrors. Mm -hmm. Relationships are great mirrors. My, oh my gosh, having children. (laughs) It's, uh, it's so hard and it's (laughs) the best mirror to your stuff. That stuff that's hitting you. Cause if you get upset over something, that means your stuff's getting hit. I mean, it gives you an opportunity. Oh, because th- lots of stuff doesn't upset you all day long, all day long, nothing. But it, when it does, a trigger means it's hitting something that's not healed, that needs to be processed, that emotionally we didn't digest. Is our time up? <laughs> no, I, I'm sorry. I just forgot to silence my phone. I apologize. Okay. And so I think for him, it would be an opportunity to see where do those beliefs come from? Because those are just judgment about that came from a belief but if you see that people come into our lives and you can see your role in it but that staying together doesn't mean i mean that's the goal and if you didn't stay together that something wrong you can love i mean that was a a part of my book love is not enough you can love each other like every person every man i loved that i wasn't with i still love them even though we're not together and so what did i learn from them Um, what did I learn about myself from that person? Because they're just opportunities for us to grow. So whether Mm -hmm. it's romantic relationships, and yes, you can use, I mean, talking about love, you can look at it from different perspectives. Like you can say it's lust or uh, passion or whatever it is. But the first six months of a relationship, your brain is hijacked. Mm -hmm. So when you're in love, if you've ever been in love, six to nine months, even up to a year, the ACC, which is anterior cingulate cortex part of your brain, and the amygdala, which is the part of your brain for both of them for critical thinking, and says, run, run. <laughs> <laughs> when you're in love, the first six months, it's you are blind. That's why they say love is blind, because mm-hmm. evolution said, oh, we found a match. Let's make them blind to all their faults. <laughs> mm-hmm. so they reproduce, then they're stuck together. And that that's it. That's all it cares about. It doesn't care about your happiness at all. <laughs> it just cares about, right? the genetic makeup continuing. Mm -hmm. And so I recommend usually don't make any decisions before the first, the first year pregnancy, getting married, tattoos, like (laughs) wait till your brain comes back online. And people are like, well, what happens after? Cause the chemicals are so strong. It's like an addiction is the strongest. So love is not uh, a chemical. It's like a combination of chem. It's not an emotion. It's a combination of emotions, but the chemicals are like the most potent drug and you can have withdrawals like a drug addict. And so you want to, I always say, wait till your brain comes back online because it's offline for that person, not for everything in the world. You do have a little bit of rose colored glasses where you see the world as oh, so great in love, but wait 
six months, nine months to a year. And if you're still happy when your brain comes back online, because that's when I, with couples I work with, they're like, mm -hmm. oh, I wish it was like the way it was the first year. The six months, the butterflies, I don't feel the excitement, the passion. I'm like, evolution didn't wire you to feel that long term because it wants you to get pregnant. And then it doesn't want you obsessed with that person because you're not going to take care of the baby. Mm -hmm. So it wants you to feel good around them, but not that passionate love. And so when people are like, I just don't feel. So there's people who break up every like year or so because they might be addicted to those love. Mm. And they just want that, you know, with and you can only get it with another person. Yeah. <laughs> or you break up with that one, wait a while <laughs> and then get back together like a real breakup. And mm. some people do that. They break up. Right. They get back together, break up and it's mm -hmm. not a healthy relationship but if it's a healthy relationship like you're it's good after the year you should have endorphins and feel good chemicals around each other do activities that are good for each other so there's things you can do to keep the chemicals like hugging kissing mm -hmm. orgasm um we say an orgasm a day keeps the psychologist away <laughs> um but anyway uh so things like to raise oxytocin the bond right. connecting trust um and so physical contact and things like that. But you can do things to keep the relationship great. But that passion that you had at the beginning, it's not meant to last. So you can have moments of passion, but it's not supposed to be sustained. So if you think your relationship, if you if you mistake that for love and you're like, I'm not in love anymore. That's the, that wasn't love. That was evolution. <laughs> that was chemicals that are wired. That's your brain offline. And then I have couples also say, you know, you didn't care the, at the beginning that I left my socks everywhere. And she's like, her brain wasn't online. Right. And then it comes online and she sees them and before she didn't. So they're like, now she's nitpicking at stuff that didn't matter before. And so it's, I do a lot of relationship counseling and that seems to be, but Otherwise, relationships are great because they show you things that need to be healed and your belief systems from your culture, your parents, expectations. But I think expecting a relationship to last forever. Another part of evolution is that our species is not mono monogamous. So our species did not evolve for monogamy. The male brain did not evolve for monogamy. It evolved to have many wives because that's how you get the most genetic reproduction right one man many wives as many wives as he can provide and protect and so and the children and the offspring increases the likelihood of those surviving so that's the brain male brain that continues and so to ask a man to be in a monogamous relationship is a lot it's it's a choice your values your beliefs you can do it but the male brain's not wired for that so women or men if you're with a man need to know that asking a man to do that, it's a big ask. It's a lot of bigger ask than for us. Our brain is much more wired to be just with one man through evolution. And so um, I think that's another component. Those are structures that we created, one man, one woman, or one two men, like marriage. That's something we have imposed that has nothing to do with our evolutionary wiring. Spiritually, that's a whole other thing. You can connect to somebody spiritually if you believe in soulmates, but it's very rare to be able to grow with somebody in the same direction and support. So some people might come into your lives and then go, and then other people come into your lives and doesn't mean those aren't failures. Those are just people that came into your life at a certain time and you were at the same energy vibration. And then if it continues, it's great, but it's rare. So to expect that we have this expectation, we're going to grow old together and then the divorce rate is super high, right? 
Wolves are monogamous. <laughs> we thought birds were monogamous, but we found lots of birds. <laughs> like we tested the eggs in the nest and the dad that's raising the eggs is not the bio dad. So there was some messing around going on. So we know that, I don't know, some say 30% of birds are monogamous, but yeah, wolves mate with one person for life and you know, that's it. And they don't mess around and it's just one person for the rest of their life. So that, if you want to say those sh wolves should be the ones in Valentine's cards. <laughs> They're the romantics. <laughs> it's such a fascinating concept to think about, especially when we, you know, when we think about the lives we live, the idea of happiness, the idea of wellness, like there's just so many moving parts in there. And on some level, I'm amazed at how successful we are. Like we, we spend a lot of time talking about how all these problems that we have, but I mean, we should be giving ourselves a pat on the back sometimes for, for making it as far as we have and, and conquering the things that we do. And sometimes I wonder, Dolly, but let me get your opinion on this. It seems like whether it's medicine or relationships or help that we spend so much time focusing on ailments. Might it be better if we focused like on, hey, this is a person that has everything going for him, or this is this is this is what success is. Like maybe instead of focusing on all the negative aspects, what if we spent more time focusing on the positive aspects? What do you think about that? I love that. That I mean, I love that. That's what I do. Positive psychology, <laughs> yeah. right? Positive psychology, yeah. Martin Seligman. He studied, um, learned helplessness, and he studied mm. dogs that were being shocked and noticed that if you have a lot of trauma in your life before the age of 10, that it kind of sets you to kind of be pessimistic, like expecting mm -hmm. the other should drop and that bad things are going to happen. And so you can unlearn it. I really recommend his books, Martin Seligman and um, Authentic Happiness and Learned Optimism. So if you're not naturally optimistic, you can learn to be optimistic. But he was studying depression and lots of great research for depression and helping and psychology, right, was looking at disorders and we help people who were severely mentally ill. But then his daughter, I think he has like five kids and his youngest daughter once said, once said don't you study psychology? Why are you always so grumpy? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> and then he started studying happiness. And this is like 40 years ago, right? 30, 40 years ago, we started studying what makes people happy. And that became, it's like, if we can study depression, why can't we study happiness? A lot of people were saying you can't. And what actually makes people happy and healthy and who's happy in the world. And so that became a whole branch of psychology that I went into, especially because we find psychologists who go into that branch are the happiest psychologists of all, because we can also have high risk of depression and things from working in this field. Um, and so I'm like, okay, I'll jump. I like that. And how to help people be happy and healthy in the school system, strength-based. Mm -hmm. um, and I really recommend uh, the um, Penn State has a free website uh, on positive psychology, authentic happiness. If you put Penn State authentic happiness questionnaires, these are based on real research. This is what the positive psychologist team uses. There's one called the VIA questionnaire. It's your character strengths, V-I-A. If you put V-I-A and you take it, it's free. And it, it takes a while, maybe 45 minutes. And it's a list of uh, um, your top strengths in your character. What are your top strengths? And then it says people who focus on their strengths are happier and healthier. So there's this movement we found in the school system, happier students learn better. So you were focused on education, raising the scores, well, helping them to be happier um, 
healthier, brings up their scores. And so there is a movement to focus on kids, their strengths and not their weaknesses. Because for a long time, it was like, we need to improve their weaknesses. And now it's like, well, let's get the weaknesses just okay, but let's focus on their strength. They're amazing at music or Gardner's multiple intelligence. Like we all have natural abilities and intelligence because of nature and nurture, IQ, whatever. And some are kinesthetic, like sport, but, and some are logic and math. But usually we say, oh, you're just a great athlete, but we don't see that as an intelligence. And an Einstein or math and science, oh, those are the really smart people. But it's like, no, it's just different modules of the brain, different types of intelligence. Some are musical intelligence. Mm -hmm. Some are like naturalistic, gardening, or, and some is philosophy or the things we're talking about, religion, existential intelligence. So he identified those and said, they're all the same. It's just different parts of the brain. And we, society just values some. They say, oh, this is a really smart person if you're smart at this. If you're smart at this, you're a jock or you're an athlete, but that doesn't mean you're super intelligent. But they're just different types. So I like that model. A lot of schools, Montessori schools, some of them, they're applying some of that. And I like the strength-based. I think of Tim Ferriss, too, and he, he wrote The 4-Hour Week and Book of the Titans. And I feel like he's also highlighting like people who are great in their field or... Um, Philip Zimbardo, who did the Stanford prison experiment, who mm. was very good at that experiment, mm -hmm. but he started working on heroes. What are attributes of heroes? And so I do think focusing on strength, positive psychology, there's a movement, but that book you just showed me, that's full of disorders. And yeah. so uh, I've been a therapist for 23 years and I don't diagnose. I don't diagnose. So that's my own personal choice. I can't work with insurance companies because you have to diagnose mm. to insurance companies because if you see a therapist, you have to put a diagnosis in order to continue seeing a client for them to pay. It's the reason uh, why they're paying for you to see them. There's a code. If you don't put a code, it means not, there's no nothing out of order. It's like coming, the plumber says, there's nothing wrong with your plumbing. Why does the plumber keep coming back, right? So something needs to be out of order. So if you see a therapist, mm. you're using your insurance, make sure you find out what code, what diagnosing are they putting to, to be able to get reimbursed for seeing you. Again, I'm not criticizing, but that's just not, it's never been my approach to therapy. I like to see the person holistically. And some of my approaches wouldn't be... Uh, they're not unethical, but they don't cover all the approaches. And so what they do is they do research on certain ones, like cognitive behavioral therapy, which I do. But if I wanted to do past life regression, so they want it to be research-based. And I can see that because you want to be able to have some standardizations and some level, but that doesn't mean like play therapy for, you know, the school system stopped paying for play therapists. And it's like, oh, there's not enough research to show play therapy. Well, is it showing it doesn't work? Right. Uh, it's just there wasn't any funding for play therapy. It was mostly for others. So the ones that get funded are the ones there's more research for. Just like, anyway, I think TM is great, Transcendental Meditation, but there's other types that work great, but maybe they don't have the funding because it costs money to do TM, which I think is not inherently great. But I just think funding and research, there's a whole other thing. And so I don't want that to play a role in you have this diagnosis, I have to diagnose you with this, and now I have to treat you only with the ways they say I'm allowed to treat you. So it really puts you in a cookie cutter box. Um, and I didn't, I don't like that. <laughs> As you can see with my approach to life, it's very broad and definitely doesn't fit in a box. And so for some people, they're wanting that, so they wouldn't necessarily work with me if that's what you're looking for. 
Um, but when I teach at the university, I definitely bring up all these topics to intro to psych students and others who are going into psychology to make them aware of what's available, all about different options. Yeah, it's it's too bad we don't measure the results instead of having to go back and find funding. Because if, if you have a technique that is helping people, that should be the, the measure should be the result. Like, look, this person is better. You know, not like what it took a million dollars for me to train these Pavlovian dogs with a whistle, you know. <laughs> that's, but, that's how I measure results, my right. results with clients. And so if it's working, then to help them be happier and healthier and fulfill their unique potential purpose, then that's what I do. And so and I'm really grateful to have been able to do this for in this lifetime to help people in that way. Yeah. Well, I think you, you've got an incredible insight and a incredible desire to help people, which is, I hope it's contagious. I hope more people get what you have and they go <laughs> and they, <laughs> they do that because it's a beautiful thing, Dolly Beth. And I, Thank you. Um, yeah, I, you know what? So before we, I let you go, um, can you tell people a little bit of, more about your book and where they can find it? where people can find you and what you have coming up. Thank you. Yes. Uh, my book is called love is not enough. Uh, my journey from codependence to awakened goddess, and they can find it on Amazon for $11 and 11 cents. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I believe in signs. So yeah, I love it. Prizes because the 11, 11 and so guidance and so forth. And then uh, positive health. Hawaii is my website. They can find there all the different services I do from traditional psychotherapy to um, some of the other things that I spoke about. And then I teach for Hawaii Pacific University. So I teach there. So they, if they want to take classes at HBU, yeah. <laughs> they can be very my student. I've taught the military campus uh, and the regular campus, but the military campus for a long time and really grateful. I've been in, at HPU for 23 years. And then uh, Happiness University with Alice Inouye. If they're not familiar with that, uh, she's a great astrologist, and uh, I do courses with her also uh, for the state, and um, I'm really grateful to do that. And um, in the future, we'll be providing maybe some courses that could be helpful, so I will put that on the website. So if they want to contact me, don't laugh, but I my email is dollybath at AOL.com. <laughs> I just, I know, I know. <laughs> I'm not saying anything. <laughs> Yeah, I'm still at AOL. Uh, yeah. I, ha I have not <laughs> moved from there. I, I have, of course, university emails and so forth. But that's the best way to reach me or the website. And uh, if they have any questions or comments, I'd be happy to help. I really love referring people, like being in the field so long. So if you say, because there's new um, approaches that we didn't talk about, like MERT and your feedback, M-E-R-T, yeah. for that can be helpful. So um, I'm very grateful for technology and new approaches, especially for neurological disorders like ADHD and autism, PTSD and depression. So new technologies that I'm excited about. But I always feel like you have to balance because I know people who are doing neurofeedback, but are you? that's great to rewire your brain for all of us. It's like brain gym. Right. But you have to do the emotional work and the spiritual work too. But if anybody has questions, I'd be happy to help. Yeah, those are great points. Those those things go together. And the more technology we learn about brain mapping or those QEEG machines, and it's important to understand that those are all great maps, but 
they're not the territory. You got to get in there with the emotions and, and understanding and stuff. So, well, I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. I hope you'll come back and maybe we'll do some panels. I got some more people that I think would be a great, it would be nice to have more people involved in our conversation and would maybe give us different dimensions and things like that. So maybe in the future, we could have a further conversation about more topics. I would love to. This was okay. really a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, the pleasure's all mine. So hang on a second. I'm going to shut us down, but I wanted to talk to you one more moment before I let you go. Sure. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for spending time with us. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did, and we'll be back soon. Have a fantastic weekend, and um, tell people you love them. Aloha. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true, but you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.